Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you're the mom the maid the keeper of the cookies you do it all and you look good doing it it's parenthood on a mother level here's your host denise hanitka Hi everyone, I'm Denise and this is your Christmas week edition of On a Mother Level. Thank you for joining me for the podcast today. I wanted to get this out to you for this Christmas week because, you know, there might be some dead hours when you might want to just step aside with your headphones and a cup of coffee and have a listen. So I'm so glad that you are tuning in today to hear this interview with my friend Tori. We had celebrated Christmas Eve for many years together, um, and so we talk about that a little bit, how we got to know each other. Tori lives in the Quad Cities. She has a a five-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Ayla, and she talks about some of the challenges that she faced when Ayla was first born. She shares stories of how her mom friends have gotten her through the pandemic. I know you guys can relate to that, certainly. And how her village and her tribe and the women around her have supported her during a really tough phase where she decided to end her marriage. And so I think it's all really relatable stuff. And I think you will appreciate her perspective on everything that she's been through in the past five years since her daughter was born. Tori also has the great perspective of being raised by two women. That's pretty common now. But back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was much different. And so she shares a little perspective on what she's learned from the strong women in her life. And so here we go with my guest. My first question to her is about Shelly, one of her moms. And so we're going to start there with this episode. Thank you for listening to On a Mother Level. And to all of you out there, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. But we'll be back with one more episode next week. So here we go, Tori. The funny thing is, Tori, is that... I was going to have your mom on the podcast almost two years ago because she's a fascinating woman in herself. And I believe I can barely remember because it was two years ago. But what I really wanted to talk to her about is that I feel like she was one of the first educators that was really diving into like yoga for kids and mindful meditation. And And it seems so normal now, but I feel like two years ago, she was one of the few teachers who was really diving into this. Yeah. Yeah. She... I feel like she was always kind of ahead of the curve when it came to child development in our area. Even just a couple of years before she retired, she was 
nominated. She was in the top five for national counselor of the year for, for like doing just those things, those kind of ground groundbreaking movements um, to just, you know, allow kids to become more, um, I don't know, and, you know, in tune with emotion and, and understanding early on that all of those feelings are okay, but how can we channel them into like healthier, healthier avenues? You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Was that always a way that you were raised with that sort of mindset? You know, as an adult now, I'm like, yes, there were key phrases that my mom would use. Like, um, are you using your mud mind or your clear mind? And mistakes are wonderful opportunities to learn. And these are all phrases that just flash in my head all the time. And I'll like say them to Ayla now. I'm like, oh gosh, which is actually a wonderful thing, but it's just funny. (laughs) Well, something unique about you is that you were raised by not one, but two strong women. I was. Um, So my, so I have a sister also, and she, um, Ashley, and she's four and a half years older than me. And we both um, my parents did foster care. And so my sister came to them when she was three and a half and had been in and out of a couple different foster homes and back with her bio family and things like that. Um, and my parents always said that she chose them. Like she came in, put her stuff down, kind of took a big side and was like home. And then like, that was it. She was, she chose them. I came to my parents when I was three days old and never left. Uh, and then I was adopted when I was six months old. So, uh, pretty quick there. It wasn't like a foster to adopt situation. I was really just supposed to stay for a little while and another family was supposed to adopt me. And then that fell through and they were going to go on like a family vacation. And they were like, we can't keep her. She's not ours. Like she's (laughs) like, she needs to be ours. And they're like, okay, she's yours. (laughs) And, you know, it was in a time when that wasn't really a thing, you know? Right, right. I mean, so this was, I mean, you're in a late 80s, early 90s child. Yep. Um, And so, no, there were, you probably didn't grow up with anybody else who had either two moms or two dads. You know, I had a couple uh, in, in my parents' circle who, you know, did adoption and things like that um, with their partner, but also at the time, like, so any of those kids, unless they did it later in life, uh, both parents weren't able to legally adopt them. So my mom, Shelly legally adopted both my sister and I, my mom, Sylvie, who is in every sense of the word, but a legal piece of paper, our mom, um, couldn't because she was like a guardian, you, you know, legally a guardian, but she's, you know, their mom's. I wonder if that was painful for them at the time. That's a really, I've never actually asked that question. I should. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, that was at the same time that they couldn't even legally be married to each other. So we, I, that messaging of, you know, those benefits are there obviously, but papers don't make a family. Love makes a family. And that's what was always taught to us. In some ways, Shelly and Sylvie are like trailblazers, especially in a state like Iowa that led the nation in legalizing same-sex marriage. Totally. They totally are. And I mean, they've been together now, gosh, 36 years, I think. Yeah, they're pretty incredible. They've, They've been a pretty wonderful example. Okay, so raised by two women, have a sister, 
and now the mom of a daughter. So mm. it's like all, all lady energy all the time. Yeah. It, it's, it's always kind of been female power. And honestly, like my, my, both my moms have sisters, like it is female energy runs deep in, in the class summers. house. So. I love it. I love yeah. it. I got to know you, I guess, probably over 10 years ago now, because we used to do Christmas Eve because your, um, your moms are friends with my kind of extended in-law family. And so I do, I do really miss those Christmas Eves at Jim and Karen's. I wish they would bring those back. I was just talking with Mary about it. I'm like, I get everyone has their lives, but I'm like, those were so great. And there is some of the, like, I mean, we did started, started doing that when I was like in junior high or high school. So it was a long time. So when I believe it was at a Christmas Eve that year, five and a half years ago, when I found out you were pregnant, we were very, 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 very much trying at that time. And so you were pregnant and I remember you were so sick. You were oh. so sick. Oh my gosh. Cause it was very early on for you still. Yeah. So I found out on Halloween. So yeah, just, I was just a few weeks and, and I was sick. I morning sickness didn't have a time of day. For, it was all the time <laughs> for 24 weeks. <laughs> and then I got the flu. <laughs> oh yeah. And I had like, I had been putting in a lot of like running miles and stuff before all that. And I, you know, like a comfortable day would be like nine miles. And then I went to go run and I couldn't even make it a mile. And I was like, I might die. I couldn't breathe or anything. And then like a week later, I found out I was pregnant. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so I had just hit the 12 week mark when, um, when you guys all found out I was pregnant. <laughs> okay. But yeah, but you, you were still sick for another 12 weeks. Yeah, it was brutal, but you know, girls, I hear do that. <laughs> I feel like that's the old wives tale, but it seems to be true in a lot of cases. I had yeah. two boys and not a single day of morning sickness. I know throw something at me. Um, but my friend right now has been sick. I mean, yeah, probably she was sick at least 20 weeks. Um, and she's having a boy. So I don't. yeah, no rhyme or reason to it at all. Yeah. But I also had like the major like killer heartburn stuff and they're like, oh, she has a lot of hair. And oh my gosh, that girl had, and she never lost it. Like after she was born, she like, there were never bald spots. So they just, it just kept coming in. So yeah, it was nuts. <laughs> no, she had this gorgeous hair and it's like, it was like a reddish, right? And it's still reddish. Yeah. It's gotten more and more red. It was a little like it was a little more brown when she was first born. And now she's like the, like, if you would say like inverse of me or whatever, but I am red with a little blonde and she's more blonde with like red. So. Yeah. I remember she had this incredible head of hair and which I later learned from you that that was actually a side effect symptom of something else that was going on with her. Right. Yeah. So Ayla has something called congenital hyperinsulinism. Um, so she's basically the complete opposite of a type one diabetic. She produces too much insulin causing hypoglycemia. And there's many, many different strands and types that you can get. Um, hers was genetic through her, her dad's family. He had it as well. Um, 
and the medication she takes to kind of regulate that insulin um, causes excess hair growth. So she, she calls it her fur, <laughs> <laughs> like peach fuzz. Right. So like, um, I do think her head of hair is totally her, but like, she will get a little more like peach fuzz on her arms and legs and stuff like that. It's nothing compared to blood sugar issues. So right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the side effects of the medication. So, so when did you find out that she had that condition? Uh, well, I knew that there was a chance she could have it. Um, but I found that out when I was 23 weeks pregnant. Um, and I saw a specialist, um, we lived in Tennessee at the time. Her dad was in the military and they just said, you know, we'll need to check her blood sugar after she's born for every hour until you're discharged. Giving birth at a military installation is, uh, a unique, a unique experience in and of itself. Um, but they stopped checking her after four hours. Um, so they treated her as if she could have been a diabetic instead of HI. Um, now mind you, this is a rare disease. It affects one in 55,000 kids. So the knowledge of it, especially at a military hospitals probably is not very high. I see. Um, so at 36 weeks or 36 hours, sorry. Um, she, her blood sugar was crashing and, um, she like a normal range would be like 70 to like 120 ish. Uh, and she was, um, she was 17, pretty critical there and, uh, started having seizures, uh, from the hypoglycemia. Um, so they sent her, uh, they got one of like the, I think they call it like the angel ambulance or the kids ambulance to Vanderbilt. And she was diagnosed within two days of being in their NICU, um, officially diagnosed with it. She actually continued. So she had four clinical seizures so you could see them. And then she had subclinical seizures, ones that we couldn't see um, every five minutes for four days um, until they could get her blood sugar and everything under, under control. So that was, that was tough for sure. So, I mean, you had just given birth. Did you follow her or did you stay and recover or how did that work? Nope. Uh, I got in the car and followed the ambulance down. Which is My exactly pain. what anybody wants to do when they're like freshly, yeah. like swollen oh. and in pain. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And there were quite a few stitches involved too, but you know, oh. talking about this the other day and I, I don't remember being in a lot of pain, but I think everything was just focused elsewhere. You know, mm -hmm. mom mode kicks in really fast, you know? So I remember one thing though. So, um, so she had to have, she, I mean, she had a line coming out of every extremity. We couldn't hold her for a few days, uh, when she was in the NICU, but I remember she had, so she had an EEG. So they're monitor, monitoring like the, uh, brain activity and the seizures and, and everything. And, uh, the tech had to come in and like re stick one to her head or something. Cause they kind of use some sort of gluey adhesive to it. And I think he could tell that I was just, it was just me in there. And I could tell he was like, I was really anxious, right? Couldn't hold my newborn. All these medical things are happening. And he uh, looked at me and he was like, hey, like started explaining all the lines on the monitor to me. And he was like, see this black one here? And I said, I said, yeah, he goes, we'll talk to her. And I started talking to her. And every time I talked to her, the black line would start to, to respond. And he's like, that's, she's listening. 
she's responding to you. She knows, she knows you. So I just focused on the black line for days. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So I was like, you know, he didn't need to do that. He's no doctor explained any of that. And that was, that was really comforting. So. And it gave you a connection to her when you desperately yeah. wanted one. Yeah, for sure. Cause yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't breastfeed her. I couldn't hold her, you know, all the things you want to be doing. So I just like held her hand for days. <laughs> Yeah. How long did that last? Um, I couldn't hold her for four days and then she got enough. They were able to take enough IVs out of her that I was able to hold her. Um, still the, the breastfeeding thing didn't, didn't happen. I, I pumped, um, as much as I could, which wasn't a lot for about five weeks. And then at that point I just switched over. It was actually a relief to, she was totally, total formula baby just because um you know uh it was consistent you know it's I knew exactly the everything nutrients she was getting and it kept her blood sugar more stable than you know worrying about what am I eating that's going to affect her hours later you know whatever it might be it was a whole experience (laughs) no that makes sense so how long then was she in the hospital she was only in for 11 days and then she got to come home uh, and then when she was a month old, she developed a, she's got all kinds of stuff. Uh, she developed a hemangioma on her left eye, upper eyelid. Um, so it's like a benign cluster of, um, it's like a vascular tumor basically. Um, and so I took her back to the hospital in, in Nashville to Vanderbilt uh, where that was diagnosed. It has no connection guy at all. It's just a fluke that she has it. <laughs> So they got her on the medication to minim- shrink that. Um, and that, ironically, uh, the main side effect to that medication is hypoglycemia. Oh, so, nice. And still has it. She's still on the medication. It's, it's shrunk. They're actually discussing um, potentially surgically removing it at this point, um, just because, you know, all of those small percentages of like those, well, this could happen factor seems to have be my kid. They are talking about surgically removing that, which would allow her to come off that medication. And then we could look at potentially, you know, lowering her blood sugar medication. Cause it is something she could learn to self, like her body could learn to self-regulate the blood sugar, um, and come off medication, but it would always be something that would need to always be in the back of our minds or her mind as she's an adult. Um, because being a female, you know, puberty it can come back if she chooses to have kids someday it could come back she will probably pass it so it's all information she will have that I did not have (laughs) yeah yeah so in the early days though of being a young mom I imagine that all of this was a little is the right word isolating you know because raising a baby around the same time as you, you know, I feel like I had some freedoms that you didn't have afforded to you because you were always watching over Ayla and her blood sugars and all the things that she needed to do. So I imagine that that probably felt lonely at times. It did. It did. And so we actually, Ayla and I moved home when she was two months old, we moved back to the Quad Cities. Uh, her dad was being deployed. And uh, we moved in with my parents uh, and stayed there for a year. Um, 
just because I, I needed the help. Um, so now she has a continuous glucose monitor when she's a newborn, she's too little to have that. And when she was a newborn, she was on five different medications. None of them were at the same time. So she ended up getting medication every two hours. She had to be fed every two to three hours, uh, around the clock morning and night. Uh, my mom, Shelly, who was retired would come in at 6am and feed her and give her her meds. So I could get a little bit more sleep. And then I would do the daytime and, and night. Um, and then on the weekend, Sylvie would do the same thing and give the two of us a break. Cause she, but she was still working. So it took three grown women <laughs> to, you know, track and handle everything and keep it, you know, we had alarms on our phones all the time for when she needed different medicine and stuff. And at, at the time too, none of, none of my friends had kids and if they did, they didn't live around here. So, uh, it was tough. I don't think I ever really struggled with like a postpartum depression or, or anything like that. But I, I think that, um, I just, I just didn't like allow external factors in, like I would hardly let someone in if she was sleeping <laughs> like into the house. I'm like, we can hang out outside. <laughs> Sorry. So it was tough. My sister, um, God bless her. She kind of scouted mom groups <laughs> and stuff when she was pregnant and then after, and she was like, there's a couple moms. I, I just, you should meet. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> like, so a lot of that isolation was probably my fault. Um, just cause I, I didn't allow that. And, um, she was like, I had a doctor's appointment or something one day and she was like, well, I'll bring Ayla over and I'll watch her and, um, and then we'll do lunch after me. Okay. So when I drop her off, it's just Riker, who's itty bitty and Ayla and my sister, by the way, only my family watches Ayla because <laughs> they're the only ones who are like comfortable with her blood sugar stuff. And then I get back and I'm like ambushed by like three other women in my sister's house. And I'm like, hi, <laughs> they were all the ones that she was like, you have to meet these women. And they are now like my family and their kids are like, all of our kids are relatively the same age. And I was really happy that she ambushed me, but <laughs> it took a little bit. Like, I don't need friends. I just need my kid. Like, no, I need my friends. <laughs> so what, it, what was it about those moms? They are just so real. Nothing's off limits. No topic is ever off limits. When your kids are driving you nuts, there's no shame in saying my kids are driving me nuts. It's just a really safe space to be totally, you know, I don't feel like a good mom right now or, you know, whatever it may be. They're, they're, they're the safe landing pad, the sounding board. And they, you know, they've become a sounding board for everything now, whether it's kids or personal life or whatever it is they're they're they've become like my, my extended family. So, yeah. Yeah. Every mom needs that. We do. We totally do. And, you know, to, and to feel safe in letting that guard down and not being, you know, like the perfect mom or anything like that. Cause I am not the perfect mom and I have, will be the first to tell you it. <laughs> and, you know, so for other moms, you, you just want to be able to feel normal and not be judged by any of it, you know? Sure. Sure. How important has your mom community been, especially in the past couple of years? It sounds like they've been tough also. Yeah, they, it was, we did the whole thing, you know, FaceTime dates and stuff, but the kids just missed each other a lot. So, you know, not to get on like any specific train, but luckily all of us 
have the same views when it comes to getting a vaccine or whatever it may be. So it makes it easier now yeah. um, to have us all in the same space again, you know, um, a couple of us. So my friend Nicole and I, like we, we both still were working too. So we were like out, she's a teacher, you know, so she was in the thick of it. Um, I work at the blood center. So, so I think for us, like we were always very, very cautious with everything. We were, uh, a little more comfortable, I guess, with, you know, getting together. So our girls still saw each other and, and a little bit and stuff like that. But, you know, you, you definitely learn, you gotta, you gotta put in the work for those relationships. And I think that's what really strengthened them too, is we, you know, you figured out what was a convenience relationship, friendship, you know, and what was, um, what was really genuine. Yeah. Obviously, you know, growing up with two moms and in a time that that wasn't great, I went to a school from like kindergarten through eighth grade where there was a lot of diversity and stuff. And it's so that those things are so important to me too. And um, so the, you know, these women that I've connected with, you know, they are either from another country, like, so my friend Ellie, she's from Brazil. Um, she married someone who grew up here. My friend Nicole is from the Midwest, but she married someone from Colombia. You know, there's Portuguese being spoken to all the kids. There's Spanish being spoken to all the kids, you know, and like the kids respond. I have no clue what they're saying. <laughs> and like, yeah, totally. I'll go do that. <laughs> okay, great. But you know, there's so much it's, I feel like it's like almost like a little melting pot and they're getting that diversity and that exposure to other, other cultures so young too. And, and it's wonderful. It's the beautiful little thing to see all of them. That is way cute. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And like Ayla, thankfully, you know, she's five and it's cute right now because she'll like say she's speaking Spanish. She's not, she's <laughs> whatever sounds she thinks sounds like Spanish, but then Ellie will actually stop her and speak Portuguese to her. And Ayla was like, yeah, that's my mom. And I'm like, whoa. And Ellie's like, well, I did ask her if she could tell, if she could point out who her mom was. <laughs> so <gasps> it's crazy. It's crazy. Now I just have to get my mom to speak Spanish or speak French to Ayla. <laughs> so then she'll get all of it. <laughs> she does speak French. Yeah. So Shelly was a high school French teacher. And she taught at the University of Iowa for a while too, for a little while. Um, so she speaks fluent French. She'll tell you that she doesn't, but she does. <laughs> That's super cool. And I, a little fun fact I did not know about Shelly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the holidays coming up because I imagine single parenthood year round can be challenging, but is it harder around the holidays? Are you still kind of settling into that, that place right now? I have um, physical custody of Ayla. So she is with me 90% of the time, right? And this holiday season, starting with Thanksgiving, like the big holidays, right? It is actually the first um, time that we'll have any separation during the holidays. So she was with her dad for like five days at Thanksgiving. And that was actually the longest we've ever been away from each other. Oh, wow. We've each other for two days and 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 for those two days she was with my parents so so that was interesting uh it was it was fine and then for Christmas it is it, it is split so I get her Christmas Eve this year I that I think that'll be hard for me you know you always want your babies to wake up on Christmas day and you know Santa comes and so I think you know holiday schedules rotate and stuff I think 
this year I'll be fine because she wakes up in her home on Christmas day. And then like next year it'll be like, oh, Santa came at noon. Okay. You know, so it'll be a little, a little tougher, but I have a really, you know, we have our village here, you know, my family's here, my partner's here, girlfriends, you know, everyone's here and super supportive. They do a really great job at distracting me. (laughs) Um, finding some event to go to or fun thing. We're just hanging out somewhere. That's not my house. Uh, they're really wonderful. So, um, you know, we'll get through it. I think it's more the anxiety leading up to those things. And then once you're in it, it's like, okay, we're done with it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This isn't something that I've talked with any other mom about before on the podcast. So can no. we dive into a little bit about getting divorced with young kids? Sure. It's, it's interesting. It's, def- um, you know, every, I think everyone really wants everything to be, um, I don't know, easy. Um, yeah. obviously Ayla is my number one priority, but when things don't end well, it's, it's hard, you know, gets messy. I think the hardest part for me, obviously, you know, again, I mean, with Ayla, thank God that there's, you know, like children's books about it who you know it's like we've got a book that a kid's book that explains like how a judge helps moms and dads decide you know where they should live or you know whatever to like so for Ayla was just you know that was really helpful to understand you know that like when she doesn't want to go somewhere you know like well that's not mommy's decision you know a judge helped us get there whatever but in, in our situation um it was, it was not just, you know, divorcing Ayla's dad. It was, uh, we had a very, uh, at the time, a very tight knit group of friends that we both had been friends with since high school and it was divorcing them too. And that was probably the hardest part because I think for me, there's a big chunk of people that, you know, you kind of thought would be there, be around forever, just weren't there anymore. You figure, you know, you figure out who, who, who's there for real and who you were maybe a more of a convenience friendship to, you know? And while you walk away happy that you know that now, yeah. it still wasn't fun. No, no. It, I mean, none of it's fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, and navigating a, a new norm, um, you know, not a, a big part too, is not having, um, you know, I have my village, I have my help, but you don't have, you know, you don't get to tag out. You know, when you're tired, when you're kind of at your last straw with things, you know, whatever it may, may be, you don't have your, your tag team buddy in, in, anymore. Um, and you kind and you, and you gotta go through that. I count my blessings that I went through that situation home when I was home, had we still been living far away. And I had, if I had to go through that myself alone and then not have a support system, it would have, would have been a lot worse. Just for anybody listening who um, might be going through this or know someone who is, is there a key takeaway or a lesson or a perspective that you've learned, you know, over the past couple months that that might help somebody? You go into marriage and you don't think you're going to get divorced, right? You want that family picture, right? Um, but I definitely learned and, and I learned it through therapy and a lot of it that I could not, and I was not being the best version of myself and the happiest version of myself, um, in that relationship. And, um, 
especially raising a girl and I, you know, it's same thing with boys too, but especially raising a little girl, um, to have a voice and to be, and, and, and own that, like I needed to make sure mommy was happy, you know, and whether that was with her dad or alone or with someone else later on, like I had to take care of myself before I could take care of a relationship, you know, and whatever. And so if you're not, if you're not happy, if you know, you got, you got to take care of yourself first. So if that means that a relationship ends, um, you know, find someone who, whether it is a therapist or a really good friend or whatever, but find someone who you can talk through those feelings with, you know, um, write it down. I've got journals everywhere in my house that, you know, get a darker feeling and I'm just like, all right, got to write it on the paper and then it's done. It's gone. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. When I finally made that decision, like I was upset obviously, but I also just felt this huge relief. And like, I took a, was finally able to like take a big breath again. And from that point on, like I've been able to be a better mom because I, I knew I made a decision that was going to just be healthier for everybody. And Ayla would be able to, you know, be raised in, in a healthier environment, more loving environment and, and, and see what that, that looks like. So I don't know if that was totally advice, but no, no, I think, I think perspective is advice. You know what I mean? I think sometimes, I think sometimes you just need like, you know, to reaffirm that what you're thinking is, you know, valid, you know, just to hear it come from another woman's mouth. Yeah. It's, it's a whole situation you know, there were a lot of layers to that too. So the mental health was so much there's so much clarity after I was like, okay, now baby girl, we're going to start fresh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think you always, no matter what decision you make as a parent, whether it's, you know, a, a school choice or a family choice or whatever, sometimes I always imagine myself as an adult, like with, with the adult child and like yeah. being able to talk to them and explain to them, Hey, remember that thing? Like, this was what's going on at the time. And like, not like you need to justify it to your kid later on, but, but it's like, you want to like be at peace with your decision to then one day, I don't know, level with them and, and tell them what it was all about. Totally. And you know, the unfortunate thing is I think, I think she understood more. So my kid is a major empath too. So she picks up on things that aren't said she picks up on the, you know, the room energy and she really picks up on mommy's energy. So I think that she felt things um, and understood things more than at the time, what a three and a half year old probably should. And obviously she, you know, probably couldn't comprehend all of it together, but just knowing like, this doesn't feel right. She knows this is her, she used to call it her little house. Our house was before that was never massive, by the way, but like, this is a smaller, so she, called it her little house or whatever and this was just like she knows this this is her safe space and mommy's her safe person and I think I I'm not one to if my kid asks a question I don't make up some answer like I'll give it to her straight like I'll phrase things to make make her understand better of course but I don't shy away from anything on any topic 
but you know if she has questions about you know dad's house versus mom's house or you know whatever it may be just tell it to her straight because I think it will make those grown-up conversations when she's older a lot easier because she's already you know it's not like a random discovery she made right no I think kids appreciate honesty I always want her to come to me for anything you know like my my parents growing up like I could I could go to them for anything and you know tell them you know gosh I could tell you know when I first drank alcohol whatever it may have been and you know as an adult I hear they're like stories now like them laughing about it later but at the and then they had to like be a serious parent to my face um I I always want her to feel safe coming to me knowing you know I'm not going to be disappointed I'm not going to get angry we're going to talk about it any feeling she's having um and and I think that's where the honesty comes in I'm not gonna sugarcoat stuff I want obviously I want her life to be in that innocence to stay but you got to have real conversations with kids. You know, I don't treat her like she's a baby. I want her to be a baby forever, but mm-hmm. I don't, I don't treat her like one when she is asking questions. So, well, and I think it's like what you said, she's already picking up on stuff. So yeah. why not clarify what she's picking up rather exactly. than having her try to put the pieces together in a, in a mind that's not really able to put the pieces together. It- Exactly. And I mean, oh my gosh, the other, like, I think it's just hitting me now that I have like an almost five and a half year old and she is a real person now. It's crazy. And she, like, she's super tall too. So I'm like, where did this, <laughs> no, she's not this little tiny toddler girl anymore. She is a real life human. I mean, <laughs> and going to school, you experience a lot more of the world. You hear things from kids, you ask questions and it's a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want her to try figure skating one day? Has she already? She's been on skates. Okay. She's been on skates. So my kid, Miss Ayla, she is a bit more cautious about things, which I appreciate because that's going to really lower emergency room bills. I feel like, (laughs) um, um, for a while she wanted to play hockey, which I was down for, you have more padding than soccer. So, (laughs) but now she said she just wants to figure skate, but not, not the way mommy used to. So I used to be a competitive figure skater. Um, I started when I was five, had a couple different pair partners. Um, I went up and skated. We went to, we went to junior nationals when I was 10, everything like that. I actually quit in junior high because I was burnout and took up running, which, you know, coincidentally enough, gets you a little bit further when it comes to scholarships and things than skating does. Um, But then I went back to skating in high school and started coaching and things like that. And I am not one of those skating parents who's like, my kid's got to be a skater. I want her to do something active. She really likes running. She doesn't like soccer. We've done that but she really likes running little kid races and stuff. So she's done like the junior bigs <laughs> and things like that. So I might have a runner on my hands, which is totally fine. It's a lot cheaper than figure skating. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you, like when I told my parents I wanted to quit, they're like, okay. <laughs> they're like, excellent. <laughs> Any pair of running, you can have multiple pairs and it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you were, you were competing in skating in like, 
skating's biggest days, the Christy Yamaguchi days, the Michelle oh, Kwan, like those were oh, yeah. the days. Those, that, oh my gosh, like yeah. every kid was obsessed with like skating yeah. like that. I did not have the Dorothy Hamill haircut, thankfully. <laughs> but, you know, people who did. <laughs> no, those were the best days. And so my, and my coaches, they were, they were Olympians. Um, my, the coach I had the longest, uh, she was an Olympic pair skater from Russia, had come over. She married an American figure skater here. My parents, I mean, if you talk to my mom, she'll tell you this story too. So she was like, we did not know what we were getting ourselves into. So like, <laughs> In her very thick Russian accent, my coach Elena was like, she be skating, I be her coach. And my mom was like, sure, <laughs> great. Miss Olympian wants to coach my kid. Wonderful. And then like a year later, she's like, she be paired skater. My mom's like, okay. And, and I was skating before school, after school, on the weekends. We traveled. My sister, who's not a skater, at the time, the rink here in town was owned, privately owned. So um, the deal was if you if you were a skater and you worked at the rink, you didn't have to pay for your ice time. And my sister, not being a skater, but being four and a half years older than me, um, the owner of the rink worked out a deal where he said, well, you can work here and your sister can get free ice time. But when she can work, so it was like 14 or something, then she's got to start working here and pay for her so um it was a team it was a family effort family affair my sister worked at the rink so it covered ice time um and uh and then I started working when I was 14 <laughs> so how much did your sister still like make you pay for that <laughs> she had so many friends at the rink because we were down there all the time that were her age and some of them like some of her best friends were like the older skaters um that it really it wasn't that bad did you like pair skating because I feel like like especially as like a little kid is there like some awkwardness there like you're there like now you have to like skate with a boy like (laughs) I would have been so awkward about that (laughs) pair skating is very similar to like ballroom dancing where like was supposed to lead and that was not how life worked (laughs) on my team like so even like to the point where you're doing like a side-by-side spin and the boy is or the male is calling like the rotations that you're doing so like one two three and then you change rotation and they start counting again and they're yelling it to you on the ice and that was me that was my job because I was loud he was not Andy he was wonderful and I unlike my daughter I was not cautious and I didn't mind like I was like chuck me in the air this will be great my parents didn't appreciate it. <laughs> uh, and I got, I, we stopped pair skating right when we were about to start training more um, dangerous lifts and stuff that, you know, over, over the head, bigger throws, things like that. So they were relieved. I got out then just cause it, you know, it is dangerous, you know, you know, like my, my coach, um, you know, she did pair skating and she had a scar on from her thumb to her, to the base of her wrist, from her partner's blade getting her, you know, one time. And I have a dent in my leg from my own blade getting me. So <laughs> oh. it's a tough sport. Figure skating's, you know what though? It taught, it taught me a lot. It taught me work ethic and being resilient, you know, push past, push past hard things, you know, and, and, and get to, get to the, get to the good part at the end. So 
I think as long as Ayla can find something that can teach her to those things outside of mom trying to teach her those things, she can do whatever she wants. Yeah. And skating is interesting to me because it's almost like, it's like gymnastics where they're doing tricks now that like weren't even discussed 20 years ago. Just, I mean, even single skaters doing the jumps they're doing now and the amount of times they're doing them in a single program is, is insane because the stamina it takes and the strength it takes. So like just doing like a double jump, uh, so it'd be two and a half rotations in the air. When you come down and land on that knife, essentially you're, absor- you're absorbing eight times your body weight. Now you've got, you know, Olympians doing multiple quads in a program. And every time that impact that happens, like I often wonder, I've told my family this, I'm like, I really wonder what like my actual internal age of my body is compared to my actual age and like what skating has done. My chiropractor thinks that skating has done a lot of things. <laughs> So thank you for this. This was such a fun conversation. It was. Well, we need to catch up sometime. I would like that. I would like that. Anytime. Tell your moms I said hi. Well, bye. Bye. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.